The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 14 through 25a. Hear the word of the Lord. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be the God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Mm-hmm. Thanks be to God who delivers us through Christ Jesus our Lord. We'll talk about that in a moment. First, let's pray. Uh, Father, we commit this time to you. Uh, we recognize, Lord, that uh, uh, we are just a, a small little enclave of the work that, uh, that you're doing and a small little enclave of, uh, of people who are trying to praise your name amongst uh, the multitude that is before your throne right now. And so, Father, um, we pray that you would uh, not just bless our worship, but bless worship up the street and down the street and, and downtown and up at the lakes and all around, Lord. We just pray that... Uh, uh, as, as churches like Mech and South Lake and Prosperity and Crossway and Elevation, uh, West Charlotte, as, as all these churches uh, gather to, uh, to give you the praise that's due your name, uh, that you would receive that as a, as a fragrant offering. Uh, Lord, give us what we need to reflect back to you, your glory, and we pray that you would do that even now as we look at your word and as we consider this topic. And we pray that these would not be my words, but your words and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, um, somewhere the clicker disappeared. Guys, I'm really sorry. thought it was up here. Ah, communion table. Hold on one second. Ah. Ah. Was that graceful? Okay, all right, so thank you. I'm here all week. Uh, there is an old 1990s movie that I probably shouldn't recommend to you guys for a lot of reasons, but it's called As Good As It Gets. And what's great about it is Jack Nicholson, because he plays this really despicable, obsessive, compulsive, neurotic, uh, really um, difficult person, uh, honestly, an offensive person named Melvin. And there's this one scene where Melvin, he goes into his psychiatrist. It's a particularly difficult interaction. And he walks out, and he's in the waiting room. And he's, he says, he stops in the waiting room, and he says to no one in particular, but for everybody to hear, He just says, what if this is as good as it gets? And you hear an audible gasp from the people in the waiting room because all of them are in there hoping for change. 
They're all in there hoping that their lives will be better. And Melvin has the audacity to stand in this waiting room of hopeful changers and say, what if you're all wasting your time? What if this is as good as it gets? Or here's another picture. I've been reading a book uh, called Jaber Crow. It's by, it's by Wendell Berry. And uh, at one point, he describes this character named Roy and his very disgruntled wife named Cecilia. Uh, Rick reminded us last week, some of you remember, uh, that you can't change your spouse, but Cecilia did not get that memo. So uh, here's, what, here's what Barry writes. As it turned out, Roy was not malleable. What he was already was what he was going to be. What he was already was all she got. She couldn't make anything out of him that he hadn't already become by the time she got started on him. She couldn't even reduce him to anything less than what he was. She was disappointed in him. And this wasn't just her disappointment, for I think he was disappointed in himself for being a disappointment to her. So the question this morning is, have you found yourself disappointed at an inability in your life to change? Or maybe even bigger than that, broader than that, is have you been disappointed with God that he hasn't changed you in the ways that maybe you have hoped? Um, that's part of a series, that's a topic this morning as we continue this series that we're calling uh, I Believe in God, But, and if you're here and this morning and you're new, let me describe what we mean by that. We've about five weeks into this series now. We've said that there are places where we say we believe in God, but um, in a particular area of our lives, maybe that belief doesn't seem to have any bearing. We don't know how to apply it to our lives, or we know how to apply it, but we forget Or we know how to apply it, but we choose not to. And in all of those places, we're kind of living like practical atheists, right? Uh, We're living like God's uh, God's character doesn't have bearing, that God's absent or that he's irrelevant to this particular situation. And so this morning, we're talking about this. I believe in God, but I don't believe that I can change. And there are a lot of reasons why we might say, I don't believe I can change. I think that uh, often it's because we've tried and we've failed. Or we've met with some short success, but we always seem to yo-yo back into the same mess. I've been told that there has never been a Biggest Loser reunion show. Did you know this? <laughs> or why is that? Well, it's because we would only just be disappointed to see how quickly people regress back into their old ways, right? How few of those transformations actually last. And so we slowly develop the cynicism that is the product of all of our failed attempts at change. And so we say things like, and maybe you've said things like, what if this is as good as it gets? Or, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Or, hey, deal with it. This is just the way that I am. Or what you see is what you get. If you've said any of those things about your own life, you may have succumbed to this, I believe in God, but this Christian atheism in that area. We don't believe that God uh, can change us. We don't believe change is possible, and we're not leaving room for God to prove us otherwise. And it might be something small, it might be something big. Let me throw a wide net and see what sticks for you. I'm sure that at least one of these things might, uh, might connect. It might be a spiritual discipline that you struggle with. You want to be a man of prayer, you want to be a woman of the word, and yet, you know, it's been years and, and those routines are still a struggle for you to establish. Uh, it might be an old way of thinking that you just can't break, you find yourself going right back to it. It might be the way that you interact with your kids. You just wish it was different. It might be your tendency to gossip. You're convicted on that, but it still keeps coming out. It might be a critical spirit. It might be a routine in your life like diet or exercise or TV usage or or social media time, and maybe you're convinced that something in that is out of balance, but you haven't been able to get any traction on changing it. 
Those are some. Let me go even deeper. For some of us, it is a life-sucking addiction that just keeps pulling you down. Maybe it's spending habits that you, you know they're out of control and yet you still can't seem to get a responsible handle on them. Might be a, a sin, fill in the blank, any sin that just absolutely has you by the throat. The deeper we know ourselves, hopefully, the deeper that we see our need for change, right? And yet maybe in our hearts we've resigned ourselves to the fact that maybe this is as good as it gets. This deep pessimism that things are ever going to get better in our lives. There may be plenty of reasons why we don't think that we can change, but we're going to cover three of them this morning. And I hope that at least one of these might help you move forward. One of them is we don't believe that we can change because change is uncomfortable. Secondly, we don't believe that we can change because we take the wrong approach to change. And thirdly, we don't believe that we can change because we forget that for the believer, change is inevitable. I'll explain those in a minute, but let's look at the first one. We don't believe that we can change because change is uncomfortable. And notice that that's not really a reason. That's more of an excuse. But I feel like we need to talk about this one first because it is an excuse that creates a barrier for us. We've got to address it because a lot of our convictions about I can't change really, if we're honest, might boil down to I just really don't want to change. And that may not be, you may not think that's you, but you certainly can identify that in lots of people around you, right? (laughs) And so you have to at least leave open the possibility that you're capable of that as well, right? I want to change, but not really. Uh, I want to eat healthier until the gang's going out for pizza, then I don't want to eat healthier, right? I want to exercise until the weather's just not quite right, which it never is, right? It's too hot, it's too cold, too wet, too much traffic, too much pollen, whatever. There's always some reason, right? In other words, I want to change as long as I don't have to make the changes that I need to make in order to change, which means that I don't really want to change, right? John 5, I think, is a great example of this. I want us to look at this story. Beginning in verse 2, this may be familiar to some of you. It says, now there, there is in Jerusalem near the sheep pool, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Stop and consider that for a moment. 38 years this guy has been an invalid. 38 years begging at the pool and hoping for a break. And then verse 6, it says this, when Jesus saw him lying there, And learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Now, can we be honest for a moment? On the surface, that is almost an offensive question. Do you want to be well? This guy's been sick for 38 years. He's been an invalid outcast. And Jesus says, do you want to be well? Ask a poor man if he wants a million dollars. Ask a starving man if he would like to go with you to the buffet. Ask a bald man if he would like hair. These are Captain Obvious kinds of questions, right? But the guy's answer reveals that Jesus knows exactly what he's trying to draw out of him, right? Because look what he says. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. I'm trying to get in. Someone else always goes down ahead of me. Do you hear what this is? This is amazing. He doesn't say yes. Instead, he gives the same beggar sob story that he probably has rehearsed and given dozens of times a day for the last 30-something years, right? He explained the reasons why he's sick. 
He explains the reasons why he's never gotten better. The reasons why he won't get better. Jesus didn't ask, brother, tell me your woes. Give me your excuses. He says, do you want to be well? I'm not saying that this guy didn't want ultimately to be well, but right now from his answer, what we see is that he's stuck. And that can be us too. Now, what I'm about to say is not true of all of you in here. So please um, listen discerningly as I try and say this carefully, because if you hear this wrongly, it's going to sound like I'm minimizing your wound or your pain or your situation. And I don't mean to do that. But for some of us in here, some of us like our wounds. Some of us like being the victim. I like my wound because it defines me. People feel sorry for me. And man, that feels good. That might not be you. So if it isn't, don't, don't let that arrow stick. It's okay. But I'm saying that it might be true of you because I know that it has been true of me. I had a particularly rough stretch, I would say, in my life that came in the aftermath of a uh, failed dating relationship. This was a long, ongoing one. It was years of my life. And when it finally ended, I had a lot of friends and a whole church community kind of around me that were providing support and encouragement and cheering me on. But in doing so, I felt their pity and I felt kind of their poor Kevin attitude. And I discovered that those poor Kevin conversations felt pretty good, right? Because I was the victim. I was vindicated. I got to say, you're right. I am the victim here. Thanks for recognizing that, right? The poor Kevin attitude felt comfortable for me. I didn't have to change anything. I didn't have to move forward at all, right? All I had to do was bask in the role of the tragic hero, which I was not, but it felt good to pretend that I was. And then I'm minding my own business reading this book by Scotty Smith and this sentence comes, comes out, popping my poor Kevin bubble. He says this, as long as your cry for relief is louder than your cry for a changed heart, you will remain a prisoner to your pain and a hostage of self-pity. Poor Kevin was defining me and it was holding me hostage, right? And this grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me and said, do you want to change or do you just want to feel better? You guys will remember Scotty Smith spoke a few years ago at the men's retreat. And when I I got to talk to him, I said, you know, this sentence in your book, like totally, uh, it it was a turn in the road for for me. And he goes, oh, I didn't write that. He said, Dan Allender told me that when I was having my little pity party. And um, so I put it in the book. So Dan Allender gave it to Scotty and Scotty through a book gave it to me and I'm giving it to you. And if the shoe fits, then take a picture of that quote and ponder it, right? Are you a hostage to your own self-pity? because you'd rather have relief than a changed heart. Guys, I share that because that's the beggar at the pool too, right? Do you want to stay the victim or do you want to be well? And his answer is kind of a poor me response. Here's the cool thing though. Jesus heals him anyway, which is awesome, right? Yay for that. But now this guy's life is never going to be the same in great and also in difficult and uncomfortable ways, right? He will never be able to beg again. Presumably, this guy, after 38 years of uh, a particular routine, he's now going to have to go find a job, right? He's going to have to learn how to be a, a dispenser of mercy and not just a consistent recipient of mercy. All of his patterns are going to change, right? And th- that's great, but it's also uncomfortable, right? And it's hard, and it's faith-stretching. Do you want to be well? 
Like it's a fair question. Change means that you're going to have to give up the old places that you went to escape. Change means you're going to have to give up your false comfort and your false security. Change means that you might have to shelve the old excuses and not bring them out anymore. Change might mean that you're open to feedback when you start falling back into the same patterns. Change means you're going to have to have the courage to confess something, to put something uncomfortable and awkward out there for other people to see. Change means that you're willing to step into a future that is unknown, that you you can't predict, you don't know what it is now. Change might mean that you sign up for marriage counseling or that you flush the drugs or that you find a new way home from work or that you move the computer. Change might mean that you need to start selling stuff or that you need to stop buying so much stuff. Change might mean feeling weak or off kilter or a little exposed. Is that all scary to you? Of course it is. Change doesn't let you play it safe. But let me ask you this. Does that sound freeing to you? Of course it does. Because you're believing in those moments that God is bigger than your place of stuck. So we don't believe we can change because change is uncomfortable. Secondly, we don't believe we can change because we take the wrong approach to change. This is what I mean by that. We tend to view or approach change impatiently and impersonally. Impatiently, because we just, man, you know, can't, can't a, um, uh, just a, a book with five steps fix this thing? Can't I just apply some self-help techniques? Can't I figure out my, my diet in 30 days? Because that's what Whole30 promised that I would be able to do, right? So um, we expect quick fixes and immediate response, right? Both of these things are, um, are hinted at in, in the passage we just looked at. The other one is that uh, we tend to view change impersonally. We tend to try and deal with it ourselves, some self-help techniques along the way. That's what we resort to. Um, that is not the way that the Bible presents change in Romans 7 and in lots of other places because the Bible presents change as a process and it presents change as a person. Do you see that in the, in the passage that Harry read? Let me show you. Um, in Romans 7, uh, Paul's sharing his own struggle and in verse 18 he says this, I have the desire to do what is good but I cannot carry it out. Now remember, Paul's been walking this Christian road for a while but he's still struggling to do the things that he really feels like he's called to do as a believer, right? And then on top of that, he says, verse 19, he says, the evil I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. So he's str- you see the tension there. Not only is he not doing what he wants to do, he's, not, he's doing what he doesn't want to do. I'll just say this. Romans 7 gives me a lot of hope. It, it's, it sounds horrific. It sounds like a trap. It sounds like all those do's that Harry just read, right? It, just, it sounds tough, but... Guys, what's, this is what um, encourages me is the fact that this is Paul writing. Paul wrote 13 books in this thing called the Bible. Have you heard of it? <laughs> Paul is a guy that we name churches after. We name cities after. He's the Apostle Paul. He's St. Paul. He's been at this for a while. And in Romans 7, he describes this tension. If you've ever felt that tension of the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I do want to do, I don't. Then you're in good company. What an encouraging thing that is, Right? He recognizes, he sees how far short he still falls on this road of change. He recognizes that change is not always pretty. It's like watching the grass grow. It's, 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 um, the growth is happening, but it's imperceptible in the short term. And it's, it's not easy. Um, illustration. I don't know if this will work for you guys or not, but if, if the concept of grass growing works for you, then take this to the next level, okay? Um, this week at UNCC, Rotney the Magnificent bloomed. 
Um, Rotni is a, um, a plant that's called a corpse flower. It's from Indonesia. Uh, it, only, um, it only blooms once every five years or so. And this one, Rotney, has taken, uh, from inception, has taken 12 years to bloom. So they've been waiting for this flower to come for 12 years. When it comes, it lasts for just 24 to 36 hours. It's gone now. I'm sorry if you guys missed it. You'll have to wait another five years or so. But um, when it um, opens up, it smells like a uh, rotting corpse. That's why it's called the corpse flower. You can smell it a half a mile away. If you've been driving by UNCC, uh, you know, on, on Thursday night at around uh, midnight or so, you may have wondered what died, right? So uh, that's, that's my boys, because, you know, that's something you got to take boys to, right? Because it's like, if it's gross, it's awesome, right? So there we are holding our noses, right? Um, guys, change is, uh, <laughs> as I was looking at Rodney, I was thinking, here it is. This is the sermon, right? I mean, uh, change, to, it takes 12 years to see a flower, and then when the, when the change finally comes, it smells really bad, right? That's you. Sorry. But <laughs> change is slow, slow, slow. When it finally comes, it's still not pretty sometimes, right? I went to a leadership program a couple of years ago, and I came back with a lot of deep convictions about the things that I wanted to change about, about my, uh, my work and in my leadership, just some, some deep convictions. And, and I wrote the stuff out with conviction and, and all the pathos that I could muster and tears. And, and this is what I want to change. And I shared it with, with Rick and with the other pastors. And I shared it with um, our head of staff, Cheryl, who very compassionately and astutely and correctly said this. She said, these are all good goals, Kevin, but just don't forget that you have been you for 40-something years. So, which for a moment kind of pulled the rug out from under me, but it's Rotney, right? I mean, this is accurate. It's, I, I wanted people to see the immediate new me changes a whole lot slower than that. It's a process, right? It's more like what my professor Steve Brown used to say. He ran a radio ministry and, and he, he could be controversial. So people would call in and tell him what they didn't like about him or what they didn't like about what he said, or they'd write and they'd tell him what they didn't like about him or something about what he said. And his patent response was he had several patent responses, but his main one that I loved was he would say, you're right, I'm not good, but I'm better than I was. This is a process. And for us as Christians to recognize that we're in process, we can look back and we can say, I'm still not good. But you know, the Apostle Paul said that he wasn't good, but we're all better than we were. But more than a process, um, for the Christian, change is a person. Verse 24 of Romans 7 says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He doesn't say what will deliver me from this body of death. What book can I read? What technique can I, can I muster that will help me to change? He doesn't say that. He says, who will deliver me? And then he answers with the gospel. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the hope for change? At the beginning, I said it is Christian atheism for us to think that God can't change us, but it's also Christian atheism for us to go ahead and try and change and leave Jesus out of it. Act like God doesn't exist or that he's not part of that change, right? To, to believe that we can accomplish change on our own is also living in Christian atheism, right? If your answer to the change that you want to see in your life is some form of try harder, read a different book, Time for another New Year's resolution. This time I'll write it in all caps so it'll count more resolutions along the way, right? Nothing's wrong with, with um, effort and nothing's wrong with those things, right? But where's God in it? And where's the gospel in it? In his book, How People Change, Paul Tripp says this, Christianity's change process does not revolve around a system of redemption, but around a person who redeems. That means simply this. Remember this. Change for the Christian happens in relationship with Jesus. 
That's how it happens. It happens as we abide in Christ, as we remain in him. I cannot bear fruit apart from being connected to the vine. It's ridiculous for me to try and become more loving, more patient, more kind, more joyous, more whatever, just by going, gotta try harder. That's ridiculous. I've gotta be connected to the vine because that fruit that I'm trying to bear is the fruit of the what? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's His fruit. It's not my fruit. And so me trying to accomplish that apart from being connected and abiding in Him is ridiculous. I have to trust in a person in order to change. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is your hope of change. It's interesting in Colossians 1.29, Paul even says it this way, to this end I labor, struggling with all my energy, right? Now look at what he says. He says, I'm struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I'm working, but it's his work. I'm, I'm, I'm working, but it's his power. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is your hope of change, right? And that addresses the last barrier as well, too. We don't believe that we can change, not just because change is uncomfortable and not just because we, uh, we take the wrong approach to change, but we don't believe we can change because we forget that if you're a Christian, <laughs> for the believer, change is inevitable. The Christian hope is all about change. It starts with death to life, it's darkness to light, it's, it's guilty to forgiven, it's, it's I was an enemy and now I'm a child of God, right? It's all of those things. And all of those contrasts remind us that God has begun something in us and the, the Bible says that he's committed to carrying it on to completion. He's going to finish in us what he's started. And that's being, the Bible calls it being conformed to the image of Christ, which is just a fancy Bibleese way of, of saying that we are one day going to perfectly reflect the character of Jesus and the, and the concerns of Jesus. That we will, <clears throat> we will think rightly. I don't always think rightly now. We will feel rightly. That doesn't happen now either. We will desire rightly. We will act rightly. All of that will be sorted out one day. He's committed to that in his people. He's committed to that in you. And we're told that one day we're going to be changed in the flash, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. We're told that we're going to be changed, right? But between now and then, he's reshaping us. He's conforming us to his image a little bit at a time. You will change. I want to ask you to do this for a moment, if you would. Just kind of um, look at the person next to you. Um, And I want you to imagine them If you're sitting by yourself, just look across the hall longingly at somebody else. Just gaze at them. Kind of freak them out. Do a sterilized contest. See what happens. So hopefully it's somebody next to you that you know. And I want you to, for a moment, picture them perfect. I recognize that the better you know this person, the harder this is going to be. But just just work with me for a moment, okay? So I want you to picture them perfected. Because that's where this is going, right? I want you to imagine them complete in Christ. Imagine them without any hint of sin. No abrasive personality. No anxieties. No dropping the ball. No fear. No depression. No selfishness. No trying to impress you. No trying to impress others. No insecurities anymore. No arrogance anymore. No emotional walls or being emotionally disconnected. No misordered priorities in their heart. Everything is sorted out the way it's supposed to be. No wondering if you're going to catch them on a good day or on a bad day. 
no lack of wisdom or discernment. No taking what you said the wrong way. And most of all, look at them again. Here will be the defining characteristic of their life. They will be sold out head over heels bananas in love with Jesus. Perfectly. Imagine those things in them, right? That's where this is going. That's the hope. Of, if that person sitting next to you is a believer, this is where God's taking them. And imagine it in you. Because <laughs> this is what he's up to in you as well. I've just described the soon-to-be reality of the Christian hope. By God's grace, you are not what you will be. So think about what do you think it's going to look like between this day and that day because I hate to say this, but you know all of that stuff I just said, y'all aren't there yet. <laughs> we have a ways to go, right? And so it's going to take whittling and chiseling and, and, and shaping and honing and molding and God disciplining those that he loves to get us to that place, right? To surrender to what he's up to in us and how he's changing us and what he's making us into. And we will feel the tension and we will feel pushback on that. I think that we sometimes think that what God's up to in us is just a fresh coat of paint. Y'all, if, the, if, if you're as bad as this book says that you are, a fresh coat of paint is not going to fix it. He intends to do a full restoration, a full remodel. He's going to knock out some walls. He's going to tear up some floorboards. That's what he's up to in us, to get us to that place, right? I had a cousin uh, named Michael, and he was, uh, he, his uh, occupation, he was a painter, but he did faux painting, F-A-U-X, faux painting, where he could make uh, wood look like plaster. He could make plaster look like wood. He would just do all... And he did this in... He lived in Brooklyn. He did this in Manhattan. And over the course of his, uh, his life, he actually got to paint a couple of celebrities' houses. And one of them was uh, Keith Richards, Rolling Stones. He got to paint Keith Richards' dining room. Keith Richards wanted clouds on his ceiling. He had this really high dome ceiling. He wanted clouds on it. So um, my, my cousin painted Keith Richards' ceiling twice, actually. What's funny is uh, he painted it once Keith loved his clouds, and then he went out on tour with the Stones, and his girlfriend decided to do some remodeling, and in the course of the remodeling, well, the, the, she got rid of the clouds, and as the, as the story goes, he came back home, and he walks in the dining room, and he says, woman, where are my clouds? So he calls, Keith, he calls uh, Michael, and Michael came back, and he repainted uh, the clouds. Michael showed me a picture, this great black and white, of, um, of Keith sitting in his dining room. This is iconic picture. It's just a silhouette because the window's behind him, but you can tell who it is very clearly, right? He's got a very distinct silhouette. He's got his feet up on, on the table, on the dining room table. He's kicked back. He's looking up. You can't see the ceiling, but Michael says, he's looking at my clouds, right? Except they're not clouds. It's just paint. If Keith really wants to sit in his dining room and look up at the ceiling and see clouds, it's going to involve a whole lot more renovation of his flat than a little bit of paint, Right? Here's the thing. Jesus is not in your life just to paint some clouds. Jesus is not in your life just to make the veneer look good. He's not just asking you for some moral improvements. He's not asking you to just add a little bit of spiritual shine to your life. Make sure you do a little bit of church on Sunday just that'll be an improvement on your life. He's conforming us to the image of the Savior. And that means he's going to knock out some walls. He's going to tear up some floors. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all its desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. 
the whole outfit. I will give you a new self. Instead, in fact, I will give you my self. My own will shall become yours. That's where he's taking us, right? It was a few years ago, we had, we had a couple come here and actually they, they were in the um, restoration and faux finishing business. That's what they did. And uh, it was a neat story as to how they ended up here because they really, neither of them had been in church in a long time. But I think they felt the need for some change. They thought that maybe Sunday church might be a good thing. And so next thing you know, uh, after church, I'm sitting kind of right there where the Margulises are, right there. I'm sitting there for about an hour after everybody else had left. And we're just talking about their story. And um, I'm sharing the gospel with them. And as, as, we're, as we're heading out at the end of it all, I said, you know, you guys are in the the restoration and faux finishing business. I, I think, you know, maybe that's, you, you picture that model better than most, better than I can, but I think you've got to ask yourself, which one of those is God up to in your life right now, right? Is, is he just trying to make things look a little better and just put a fresh coat of interesting paint on it? Or is he doing a full restoration? And we got together a few more times after that, and in the course of that, they surrendered to the idea that what God was up to was not just putting a little spiritual veneer on things, but that he was about a total restoration. They surrendered to, to Christ and, and, and gave him their lives. It's neat. Guys, that's what um, you have to ask. You have to ask yourself that same question. What is God up to? Why am I here in church? Am I here because I think that a little bit of church is a good thing for the kids? Am I here because I think a little bit of church is a good thing for me? Am I here because I'm willing to give God this aspect of my life, but, uh, but there's other aspects that I'm kind of holding back because I really only think that I need to give God this much? Is it possible that God is actually wanting to do something far more restorative and far deeper and yank some things around in your life to make that happen? When we come to the table, we're coming to the, the hope and the promise of that because... Um, Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, he said, this, this cup, I will not drink it again with you until I drink it new with you in the, new, in, in the kingdom, right? Think about that for a minute. He said, I will do this again. I will do this with you. He's pointing to a time when he's resurrected beyond the mess of the cross. He's pointing to all that. He's also pointing to a place where we work the way we were meant to work, where we desire rightly and think rightly and feel rightly and act rightly. He's pointing to those things in us, right? And he's asking for us to, um, when we come to this table, to remember the promise that he is about change, that one day he will, we will be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. So this meal is about hope. It's about hope that's built in relationship. And so really, what this, this is a picture of the relationship. And that relationship is the hope of change for us. So we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup to remind ourselves of what he's done for us and to remind ourselves of how we're connected to that. Guys, if, you, uh, if you're here this morning and, and the things that I've described, you would say, you know, if you're honest in your heart, that, that faith aspect is, is not there yet. Um, maybe you're here because a little bit of religious feels like a good idea, but, but you haven't necessarily surrendered your life to Christ. Let me encourage you, there's some, there are some warnings in the Bible about coming to this table without faith, because these are meant to be pictures of faith. And so here's the thing that this is here for, for you, though. We would encourage you to let the elements pass, but wouldn't it be great to take this moment to ask God, what are you up to in my life? Are, are, you, um, are you wanting to tune something up, or are you wanting to build something new? Um, and if you're wanting to build something new, then wouldn't you start with the foundation of Jesus Christ? So spend this time thinking about that. And... Um, this table, the elements, maybe we would say they're not for you, but Jesus is for you, so please take the time to ponder those things, right? But for all of you guys who are trusting in him by faith, you recognize that these elements picture the hope of change, and we encourage you to come.
Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that you would take this bread and this cup, they're common elements, but that you would do something uncommon with them, that you would sign and seal your promises to us, that you'd rem- remind us all over again that we belong to you. But Father, come and meet with us. We are grateful that you have invited us to the foretaste of a great feast where everything works the way it's supposed to. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.